Well, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles again to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, to chapter 5 and verse 8. Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 8. We're going to read through to the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. As we have seen so far in Ecclesiastes, this book forces us to consider uh, life under the sun with a, uh, a, a brutal and uh, bracing honesty. Uh, Solomon has made us consider matters that we'd sometimes rather not give a whole lot of thought to, uh, lest we wind up in despair. But despair, of course, is not the ultimate aim. Uh, the Bible's message is not meant to leave us in permanent despair, though it might take us through Uh, a measure of despair along the way. So the ultimate purpose is not despair, but nevertheless, uh, the Bible is a a book that paints a realistic picture of what it is to live on this earth. Ecclesiastes forces us, helps us to consider our fallen world rightly and not pretend that it's something other than it is, something it's not even if it's difficult to consider some of these realities. And I'm sure many of us would be happy to move on from uh, considering the vanity of life by now. Uh, We we get the gist, and yet we're still only here in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes. 
And Solomon returns us once more here in these verses to this matter of wealth, to this issue of riches. He's talked about this before. We looked at it for a a while in chapter 2 as he talked about pursuit of various types of self-indulgence, including the, the, the pursuit of stuff. And he returns to it here. But he doesn't simply criticize it. Uh, He also points to the goodness of contentment with the things that God has given us. And and, and he has said a lot of these things before. Much of this is, is, is repetition or expanding on things he has said or hinted at before. But he's driving it home here for us. And when it comes to this topic of wealth, possessions, as said before, uh, this can be somewhat tricky to navigate. Um, There are a couple of ditches that people tend to fall into. On the one hand, there's the ditch of idolizing wealth, um, making them God. The Bible has much to say about this. Uh, Many in our world, uh, without question, do this. Um, Even within um, some churches, uh, errant theologies, they also do the same thing. You think of the prosperity gospel, this idolizing of wealth and prosperity. But then the other ditch is to go to the other extreme and simply demonize wealth and possessions. Uh, Equate it all basically with evil, uh, some sort of ascetic type of, of view of things. And the Bible doesn't teach either of these things. It does not idolize wealth, nor does it demonize it altogether. There are indeed strong condemnations uh, of, of some rich people in the scriptures. There are many important, necessary warnings about money, but there are also many places where wealth is spoken of positively and in a good way. In our text that we're looking at this morning, Solomon again takes up this matter and he reveals a few more pieces of the puzzle as we consider how to view this matter of wealth and possessions and the relationship Uh, to us and to our God. And in these verses, we are shown that wealth brings with it many lamentable hazards and temptations. But receiving what wealth we have as a gift from God and enjoying it with contentment is good. So that's what we're looking at today. So we're going to begin by looking at the hazards of wealth that are brought up here by Solomon, the hazards of wealth. Uh, There are three of them that are brought up. There's, of course, more we could talk about, uh, but Solomon here draws us to three. And the first one is that wealth can enable oppression. Wealth can enable oppression. We see this in verses 8 and 9. Now, before we jump into those verses again, uh, admittedly, these verses do not explicitly say that wealth is the reason for the oppression that Solomon is, is pointing to here. Uh, but it does say that we should not be surprised when we see the poor oppressed, which would seem to imply that it is therefore the wealthy who are doing the oppressing in this case. Moreover, this is often pictured for us in the Bible. Wealthy people using the power that comes with their wealth to oppress others. You might think of James' strong warnings to the rich in James chapter 5. And there he condemns the rich, not simply because they have wealth, but because they've held back wages from the laborers. By fraud, he says. They owe money to these people working for them, and they're not giving it to them. They're 
uh, oppressing their workers while lining their own pockets. And this was often what happened in Israel. We see this condemned throughout the prophets. Amos 5 is one place that takes aim at this very issue. We mentioned Amos 5 just briefly last week. But the wealthy leaders and rulers there in Israel were trampling those poorer than them and in the process making a mockery of justice and righteousness. And so I do think it is correct, given uh, all these things, plus even the immediate context of, of Ecclesiastes 5, the immediate context, in the immediate context, he's going to go on to specifically focus in on this issue of wealth. So I think it's, it's, it's right to see this oppression as being a hazard of, of wealth and its accompanying power. reality is, even while commoners might arise to power within a nation, and we saw this even at the end of chapter 4, that, that poor but wise youth that rose to be king, such people don't stay poor. Even in our own country, uh, an MP might come from obscurity and have been raised with little or nothing, uh, but MPs make quite a bit of money, $185,000 a year. They get a full pension after six years. Uh, it's not an astronomical amount of money, uh, but that's still a lot more than the average household income in this country. So just if we ever wonder why some refuse to take a stand that seems obvious, you know, I, not to impugn every person's motive, but that is possibly one of them. So in, in verse 8, Solomon says here that if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. He's telling us here not to be shocked when you discover this, when there's oppression, when there's injustice and unrighteousness amongst rulers. He's saying, don't be dumbfounded by that. One commentator says here that Solomon is not advocating complacency in the face of evil, but he does want his readers to be realistic. We live in a fallen world. Those who attain power and wealth are prone, therefore, to abuse it as sinners. This is a sad reality of life under the sun. It is wrong and it is evil, but it is not to be shocking if we understand what the scripture says about human nature and about the reality of human depravity. He says here not to be amazed at the matter, not to be shocked, thrown off by this, uh, dumbfounded by this reality. He goes on to say we shouldn't be astonished because or for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. Some understand this as being Maybe a positive statement that the higher officials, he's saying, will be dealt with by the higher official that's even over them. So don't worry about it. Don't be too rattled when you see this. Um, but most, I think, rightly view this as a negative commentary on the layers of bureaucracy within a government. Solomon is saying we shouldn't be surprised by oppression and corruption because the layers of officials covers, provides cover and deflection. It offers protection for corrupted officials. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible even translates this, that a high official is protected by a higher one over them. 
So he's saying these layers provide a safety for these men, women who are corrupt. I was just following orders. Uh, this isn't really my call. I'm just doing what I'm told to do by those above me. Uh, this policy is not my policy. It's, it's, it's those above me. It's not my call. Or it wasn't me. It was another person in the system, whatever. This is common. This is very common. You try to get to the answer who's responsible for something and it gets lost in the chain of command. It's almost certain that within a vast network of sinful men in power, there will be corruption. It's wrong. This doesn't make it right, but it's not the least bit surprising. It shouldn't be. And verse 9 is a verse that's a little bit difficult to know exactly what Solomon's getting at here, but it seems most likely to function as something of a counterbalance to what he has just said. While corruption is not surprising, Solomon is not for anarchy either. Verse 9, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So even with the threat of corruption, there is still a benefit to a land in having government. Among other things, a king that is committed to cultivated fields is going to make sure that there is protection, that food might be produced and people fed. So it seems he's suggesting that some forms of tyranny, at least, are better than straight-up anarchy. I think we can acknowledge this is true. Uh, While I wouldn't hesitate to say that we're experiencing tyranny in Canada right now, I also don't think it would be better to simply blow the whole thing up and replace it with with every man for himself. If all of a sudden all law and order was just gone, all government and authority was just gone, it was everyone looking out for themselves, I don't think that would put us in a better place. And so it seems Solomon here is being realistic about society. The wealthy and powerful will often act corruptly, and yet, where able, we can still find reasons to be thankful to be where we are. And once more, this comment on the politics of man should remind us of the futility of hoping in a human-run, man-made government. The futility of placing hope in the kingdom of man. And remind us of the need for Christ's eternal kingdom to place our hope there. To know that he is the Messiah who comes and will one day completely and finally do away with man's kingdoms and his kingdom will be eternally consummated. So this realism about man's government should cause all who believe in Christ to hold fast to your citizenship that resides in heaven and to await and look with all the more longing and eager anticipation at his coming return. Solomon continues here and addresses another hazard of wealth. And that is that wealth does not satisfy the one who loves wealth. The wealth does not satisfy the one who loves it. Verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Notice the problem that verse 10 points to is not money per se, but rather it's the love of it. If you love money, he's saying, you won't be satisfied with any amount of it. If you love wealth or abundance, 
you won't be satisfied with your income. There will always be more to be had. He's saying that this love of money is just a vanity. It's a chasing after wind. You will never be satisfied. You will never have enough. Your love of money and abundance won't be satisfied. There's always more to be had. Again, Solomon has gone over this in chapter 2 when looking at self-indulgence. So he's in many ways repeating himself and saying it just a little differently. Now determining whether or not we possess this kind of love of money and love of possessions, that which is condemned here, uh, can be a little bit difficult for Christians. Uh, at what point, we might ask, does gladness and thankfulness uh, cross a line into some sort of sinful love of this stuff, of money, of things, of goods? Well, just one test we might, you might give to yourself is to ask if you're content, to test your measure of your, your level of contentment. Are you satisfied with these things that you are grateful for and enjoy? If you acquired no more, or if your wage stays the same, assuming it's enough to live on and survive on, could you be, would you be content with that? In verses 11 to 12, he continues to show ways that wealth fails to satisfy. If you look again at verse 11, it says, When goods increase... They increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Increased wealth and possessions increases also the number of hangers-on, those who would draw near to snatch up the wealth. So you need to now hire more employees. You need to pay a financial advisor to help you make decisions with this. You have a, a new and bigger home and now here comes the, uh, the salesman to sell you a, a, a security system. There's always more people coming for your wealth. And Solomon says the owner then is left really just looking at his wealth, but he's unable to enjoy it. Just able to see it with his eyes, as he says, but that's really about it. He passes it around to others. He deals with new problems. He's pursuing more money still, but he doesn't get to just enjoy it. And verse 12 points to the added stress of it all. The simple laborer, whether he eats a lot or just a little bit, is able to sleep because he doesn't have all the added stress of the wealthy and successful man and the lover of money. That wealthy man may never go hungry, but this doesn't mean he's going to sleep well at night. So Solomon's getting at a full stomach isn't enough to take away the problems that keep the rich up at night. These leeches that are coming for it. That thirst he has for more. Again, Solomon is pointing to the vanity of it all. Man so desires wealth, but it does not satisfy, he's saying. And it brings with it even new problems. Now, this is not trying to make light of those who have genuine need, those who are in genuine poverty, those who would probably gladly exchange their problem of hunger and need for the problems of the wealthy. It's not making light of that, but it is a warning about the love of money. 
that it will not satisfy, that it will never be enough, and it will increase stress and bring about new problems. These are things that people don't often consider when they just think or assume that they would like more. These are things we don't think would happen to us. Those just happen to a lot of people who are maybe fools. And we just shake our head. How is that even possible that so many wealthy people could be so unsatisfied? This is common. This is the way it works. Wealth is a false god that simply will not deliver for you. The third hazard of wealth mentioned here is that wealth can evaporate quickly. Wealth can evaporate quickly. Riches are not as reliable as we might think. The security that they provide can be very fleeting. Verse 13, he says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. Solomon turns now to a situation that he has presumably witnessed, perhaps even on more than one occasion. But a man who kept his riches, he says, to his own hurt, is apparently describing one who was hoarding his wealth, piling it up, not spending it, nor was he enjoying it in a reasonable way. Rather, he stored it up only to then lose it in a bad venture. A business deal gone bad, an investment that didn't turn out and left him broke. Moreover, he goes on in verse 14 to paint it even more tragically when he says he is, a fa- he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Again, a very tragic and sad picture. A man with a son, he had everything, lost it all. And now cannot provide for that son. Going down ultimately to his grave as naked as the day he was born with nothing. Verse 16, Solomon adds, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Again, this man is leaving the earth with nothing. He has profited nothing in the end. He has nothing to show for all of this. This is the reality that Solomon has lamented a number of times. You've been around, you've heard this, this question. What does it profit the man? What does it gain? What does a man gain for all his toil? This man that he's talking about here is a tragic example of of nothing, of getting to the end and, and, and profiting zero from all that toil and all that he accumulated only to lose it. Verse 17 says, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. So here is a man who never recovered from his loss. He lives out the rest of his days filled with regret, in sickness, perhaps from his poverty, perhaps because he's just so distraught. It says he's anger, filled with anger, angry about life. Here is a man who placed his hopes in the God of wealth, the God, as Jesus said, of of mammon. And he was let down. A man to whom wealth proved a fickle mistress. And such a scenario is indeed a grievous evil. 
It's a pathetic scene, variations of which have repeated themselves throughout history. It's tragic. And what Ecclesiastes would have us understand is that even if we don't lose everything in a bad venture, as this man in this example, riches still prove to be a false god and an insufficient purpose of life. As he has said already, at some point we will die, and regardless of what we've done and how much we've accumulated, it'll be left to somebody else. When the Bible condemns false gods, when the Bible convicts us of sin, it is often painful. It can be crushing to us. It can even cause a measure of despair for a time, but it is indeed for our good. It is important and good for us to hear God's word on these matters, to be reminded of these things, to hear from the God who created all things, who kindly, mercifully warns us about false gods and about temptations, that tells you that part of you that desires and loves money is going to lead you astray if you yield to it. It is kind of God to warn us of these matters, that we may turn away from vain pursuits before we end up given over to something like these hazards of wealth. So as we again give consideration here to this false god of wealth, with its inability to satisfy, with its tendency to evaporate, and how it is often tied to oppression, let us confess our sins to God in this area, however these things might convict you. In whatever way you've fallen short in these matters, And if perhaps you have truly spent your life laboring in service to money and wealth, that you do possess and have possessed what is described here as a love of money that has left you restless and ungrateful, see here the folly of this and understand that your desires in this are contrary to God's word. It's sin. Confess this sin to God. See a better way presented to you in Scripture. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you might be forgiven of your idolatry and all of your other sins. It is Jesus who has died and risen again that all who trust in him may come out from under God's righteous judgment and condemnation for your sins, your idolatry, every other sin you've committed in mind and thought and deed, that you may be forgiven of all of those. Come out from under God's condemnation and into his kingdom to become a citizen, not of this world with its oppression and injustice and into the kingdom of God. Do not labor for that which does not satisfy. And brothers and sisters who do believe this, as you live your life in a land where mammon worship is real and is everywhere, be reminded here of its emptiness. Again, 
If you see sin in your life in this area, confess that to God. Remember Christ crucified for your sins and renew gratitude that you know and worship the true, the one and only true and living God. So Solomon has laid out here some hazards of wealth that's laid before us. And and yet, he doesn't just warn, he doesn't just talk about these bad things. Before we would swear off of wealth altogether as inherently evil, Solomon has more to say. And he moves from the hazards of wealth to the proper reception of wealth. So verse 18 He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. We've seen this a number of times in Ecclesiastes already. Solomon once again brings this to our attention. He is not saying that all pleasures... And the, the wealth that is the money that is able to supply those pleasures. He's not saying all of that is to simply be forsaken. It's not that we should just simply eat gruel. Nor is work merely about slaving away in misery. He says it is good and fitting. It is appropriate and right. It is a beautiful thing to eat, to drink, and to enjoy your toil the few days that you have. These days, as Solomon says, are from God. They're days, he says, that God has given you. And this, he says, is, is our lot. It's to be our lot, our share, our portion, that which God has granted and given to us. Again, part of what is good as we live out our lives to the Lord, is those trusting in Christ, That which is commendable and said to be our our share, our lot, it's not just the things we might think of as the greatest acts in the Christian life. Uh, The the things we might even call super, you know, really spiritual acts. Uh, Obviously, a night spent in prayer is very commendable and good and right. But here also, it is said, once again, eating, drinking, enjoying our toil... Our, our, our lot is a lot given to us by God. It is good to receive whatever God gives us with glad and thankful hearts. Again, we've talked much about this, so I'll move on. Because he does expand a little bit on this. He says a little more. In verse 19, he says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Notice there is such a thing as a gift from God in which he gives wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy those things and the ability to accept one's lot and rejoice in his toil. This is describing a, a, 
gratitude and a contentment of one receiving that which God has given. Of going about the life that God has called you to. It's describing an ability, this gift is an ability to accept one's place in this world before God. In its limited capacity as a finite creature and to rejoice in the station that God has sovereignly placed you. And there is such a thing then as having wealth and not being given over to the hazards that have been mentioned here, that have been warned about. There is a gift of God that includes an ability to handle wealth in a way that honors Him. Earlier we read from 1 Corinthians 6, and there are some some, um, instructions given there to rich believers, to rich Christians. Paul says there that such are not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Again, think, you hear that concept of vanity, of fleetingness, uh, the the insecurity of wealth. He, he, He says there, don't place hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us, notice, with everything to enjoy, he says. It is good to acknowledge your goods as coming from God and to enjoy those things. They're given to you to enjoy. Paul himself says it. Don't set your hopes on those things. Again, guarding against these pitfalls and dangers and hazards of wealth. But to still receive these things as being from God to be enjoyed. And such a perspective is called by Solomon a gift. And notice that this ability to receive these things is from God, to accept one's place before God is tied to joy in Ecclesiastes 5 here, verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. One barrier to joy is the constant pursuit of more, the constant need for more stuff. And when one has a contentment in those things, it is a great aid to joy. As we think about applying this text and and what this is saying about wealth and and, uh, it can be difficult I think to to apply it because I think every person here uh, needs to deal honestly before the Lord in your own heart and and I and I have to trust that even as we just walk through this text um, you are considering these things and the Lord is applying these things to your heart and bringing conviction where needed and and encouragement also where needed Uh, maybe freedom to enjoy the things that he has indeed given you but I just want to make a few further comments as we think about applying these things. Uh, It is good, of course, as we have just read, to enjoy your wealth as being given from God, a gift from Him. But obviously, we would say this doesn't mean that every single purchase we make and every financial decision we make is, is wise. 
right? This is not a, a blank check, pardon the pun, but again, as we saw in 1 Timothy 6, there are directions, there are instructions uh, given to those uh, among us, to, to Christians who are wealthy. So again, this doesn't mean that, you know, there, there isn't a place to maybe consider if we've, you know, are hoarding things and, and have been living in opulence or something like that. Another challenge is that I suspect, at least for some of us, there's a default here to assume that uh, we're not wealthy. Certainly, I think many of us would not be wealthy by maybe present Canadian standards. And yet, in varying degrees, we all do possess a measure of wealth. And so we should be we should not too quickly just dismiss the things that are said here. Another difficulty is that this speaks of the bestowal of wealth and contentment in it as a gift from God. And we might be tempted to take some sort of fatalistic view of things and think, well, I guess I don't have that gift. And so there's nothing much I can do. As if to almost excuse our greed or our love of money or whatever. And I want to say that for every true Christian, I would submit that this is a gift that in some measure at least is within reach. That if you realize you're marked by discontentment before God and that which he has given to you, and that you've been in danger of sinfully loving money, that this gift of contentment is something God will give to you as you are sanctified. If you know that you need a fuller measure of this, I would encourage you to pray for it, to pray to the God who gives this gift. To pray for it alongside of actively seeking to put to death whatever sins rise up against it. To call out to God for release from whatever grip the love of money might still have upon your heart as you battle with your flesh. And to seek contentment with what God has given you and also importantly with the things that he has withheld from you. To know that it's okay and good that God has done that. And so pray for this. Seek after it and see if God doesn't give to you such a gift. And on the other hand, there are other real obstacles, things that will prevent someone from possessing the power to enjoy wealth, as he calls it here. So it could be that it's a spiritual problem on our part that sanctification will overcome, as I've just said, but God might also, in his sovereignty, still withhold something of this gift. For example, there could be very physical, very real reasons we lack the power to enjoy these things in life. Perhaps one is met with a tragedy, a physical illness or debilitation, which blocks legitimately the enjoyment of some of life. For some people, it's not physically easy or even possible to enjoy one's food. Or perhaps 
One is genuinely, actually stuck in a job that is truly very, very challenging, very miserable even. Perhaps a boss or other circumstances that cannot be changed. These things that are a continual assault on one's contentment and joy. And we might say in such instances that power to enjoy these good things of life is hindered ultimately by the God who is sovereign over your circumstances. And yet even so, I still don't think a Christian is doomed to a life of pure misery despite even these very real and true challenges. There are simply too many examples in scripture, in church history, and even in our own midst of believers rejoicing through very painful trials and still maintaining gratitude and perspective. And we recognize that in all of this, God is sovereign in who goes through one trial and who does not. God gives his gifts in varying measure as he sovereignly chooses. So if you find these things are easily received by you, you're in a season in which your just gratitude and contentment has, has come, you, you possess it. This is a reason to be thankful to God. Ultimately, he has provided. Things could have gone differently to you, but he has blessed you such that you are able to be in a position to enjoy these things. And so it's a reason to give thanks to him. If you're able to sit down and enjoy your supper tonight, it's a reason to be thankful that you have the physical capacity even to enjoy that food, much less the finances and the ability to purchase that food and, and cook it in a way that is pleasing. Likewise, if you are at a stage where these things are difficult, we would not want to minimize that but to also implore you to understand that ultimately God is sovereign over your situation, to call out to him for mercy, for help, to grow in gratitude and, and, and grace and, and to grow in contentment, trusting that he will supply your every need. So again, in these verses... Solomon shows us that wealth brings with it many lamentable hazards and temptations, but receiving what wealth we have as a gift from God and enjoying it with contentment is indeed a good thing. And I'd just like to close by reading again from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 19. There God says through the Apostle Paul, As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for your word. Father, we acknowledge that we are tempted by many, many different types of sins.
Father, if we were left to ourselves, we would be simply ruined by our sin. If we escaped complete ruin in this earthly life, we would be ruined as we meet you and stand before your judgment. So we give you praise and thanksgiving for the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent to die for sinners and earn a righteousness that we so desperately need and lack. And Father, I pray that each of us would would turn from false gods, idols of our age, to worship you, the true and living God. Father, free us from any remnant of sinful love of money, that we might be free of that, that we might know joy and contentment. Father, I pray that we would heed these words and not be completely rattled and thrown off and dumbfounded when we see oppression, when we see injustice and unrighteousness around us. Father, this is a fallen world after all. May we have wisdom to know how to respond. May we have courage to point people to the gospel, to Christ. The only ultimate solution and the king over the eternal kingdom. Father, I pray that not only would we see that it is wrong to idolize money and possessions and things, but also I pray that we would be able to rightly enjoy the things that you have blessed us with. That we would likewise avoid the trap of demonizing every good thing, but to receive them with thanksgiving. If there is anyone laboring here with a false guilt for the good things you have provided for them, I pray you'd free us of that. And that we would truly be able to take part with thanksgiving to you in the good things you have bestowed upon us. Father, we, we praise your name. We ask you to do the work that is, needs to be done in our hearts that only you can do. Father, pour out abundantly on us the gift of contentment and joy. Father, we ask you to do all these things that, that we might indeed grow in joy and that you might be honored in and through us. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.